0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature.
2: Are you ready to get your world rocked?
3: Ready!
2: Are you ready to get your mind blown?
3: Do it! One, two, three, four!
4: Jimmy Cliff helped bring reggae to the masses. Now, fresh off his Grammy win, he'll be our own personal guide through reggae history. I'm Greg Cot of the Chicago
2: Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. We'll also review the latest from guitar virtuoso Richard Thompson. And I'll add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, get up on your feet right now. Right now.
4: That is Justin Timberlake with a recent live performance from the Grammy Awards telecast in Los Angeles. Promoting not a song that was nominated for a Grammy Award this year. Justin Timberlake has not done any new music in eight years. But promoting an upcoming record, the 2020 Experience, increasingly the Grammys as a national telecast uh, seen by 28 million viewers The second greatest ratings that the show has had in two decades have become a promotional vehicle for artists like Justin Timberlake to promote records that they hope will be nominated for next year's Grammy Awards. And Timberlake did the job, Jim. I thought uh, in terms of just getting people to talk about him and his upcoming music, he gave a strong presentation, starting out with his 40s Cotton Club duke ellington sort of vibe bring jay-z out there doing a little bit of the michael jackson falsetto all in a suit and tie you know he's classed up his act the grown-up justin timberlake ready for his next career move i thought it was very well done the other artist or, or the other live performance i want to make note of is is frank ocean because we've we've made quite a bit of fuss about frank ocean on this show over the last year and uh, so did the village voice it uh, finished atop the critics poll this year which you're going to talk about in a minute But I'm thinking about Ocean as this being his first big national stage. And what are we going to do with that moment? Well, he comes out and performs uh, one of the lesser tracks from Channel Orange, uh, Forrest Gump, a song that not many people have heard because, you know, it was one of the nominated singles or one of the nominated records of the year. Instead, Ocean completely does his own thing. It's an introspective song. He clearly can't hear himself or the keyboard that he was playing, so he's a little off key. The whistling's a little wan. None of it really worked, and people were just left scratching their heads. So, this is the big critic's favorite Frank Ocean doing his thing up there. A lot of people were left wondering why. Ocean's a guy who doesn't play by those industry rules. I think he's very content to be an artist, artist as opposed to somebody who's demanding more national exposure. I guarantee you, his record company, his manager were telling him, don't do this, Frank. There's other ways to present your music. No, instead, Ocean pretty much doing his own thing and maybe shooting himself in the foot but shooting himself in the foot on his own terms.
2: Well, Greg, Frank Ocean may not have won any new fans during the Grammy telecast, but the rock critics of America love him. We don't spend a lot of time on the Grammys here because we have some problems with the validity of their awards. We do mention and compare the Grammys each year to the Paz and Jop poll from The Village Voice. The Village Voice polls hundreds and hundreds of critics across the country and they tabulate these votes Frank Ocean according to the Village Voice was the album of the year at number 2 was Kendrick Lamar number 3 Fiona Apple number 4 Japan Droids number 5 Miguel and it goes on the thing that struck both of us is that there was more overlap in terms of artists mentioned by both Paz and Jop the Village Voice critics poll and the Grammy nominations this year than in many years past there has always been a bit. You know, Adele, Bon Iver, Kanye, Jay-Z showed up both uh, somewhere on Paz and Jop last year and somewhere on the Grammy nominations. But this year, there was more than usual. Godier, Frank Ocean, Miguel, Usher, Kanye West, all of them had multiple Grammy nominations and placed well in the Paz and Jop poll. One thing that was interesting is two of the top 10 Paz and Jop albums, Tame Impala and my album of the year, and Kendrick Lamar, weren't even eligible this year for Grammys. The Grammy defines the year as October 1, 2011 to September thirtieth two 2012, when they're talking about the year 2012. The Oscars define the year as the calendar year. The Grammys still have this weird backward voting process. How do people vote for the Grammys? We get besieged with questions about this every year. There are thousands of members of the Recording Industry Association of America. All you have to have done is had some role on a couple of records. The nominees are narrowed down by a panel of experts. The ballots go out, people further narrow down the nominees, and then they vote. Everybody votes for the big four categories. Record, album, song of the year, and best new artist. And that's how you get big popular artists like Gaudier, Mumford and & Sons, and Fun winning but you can vote for as many as 20 categories when you vote that means you may be an expert in polka or hawaiian slack key guitar to sadly canceled uh, grammy categories lately but you can also vote for electronic dance music and that's how sometimes you get these hiccups that you get the grammys are nothing if not famous for odd awards hiccups and non-memorable prizes
0: You can get it if you really want, you can get it if you really want, you can get it if you really want, but you must try, try and try, try and try, you'll succeed at
4: last. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and that's a bit of the track, You Can Get It If You Really Want by our guest this week, reggae legend Jimmy Cliff. Now, if you know reggae, then you know the name. Jimmy Cliff never achieved the level of famous countryman Bob Marley did, but hits like You Can Get It If You Really Want, The Harder They Come, Vietnam, I mean, those are reggae classics that helped popularize the genre internationally in the 1960s and 70s. Four decades later, he's still at it. He's got a new record out called Rebirth that just won the Grammy for Best Reggae Album, and it harkens back to those classic sounds of early in his career. That career kicked off when the teenage Jimmy started working with up-and-coming Kingston producer Leslie Kong in the early 60s. So when Jimmy joined us at the Jim and K Maybe studio recently, I asked Jimmy Cliff what it felt like to link up with Kong all those years
5: ago.
0: Well,
5: it was a great feeling because I have had Prior to that, many disappointments with other producers. Mm -hmm. They all (laughs) turned me down. (laughs) So uh, we had a great relationship from that time on. Mm -hmm. I'd
4: read somewhere that you were thinking about an acting career as well. The acting was the actual ambition for going to Kingston. Is that true?
5: Yes, because I used to do acting in school. That was what I really, really enjoyed. The fact that, you know... I could be other than myself, you know, become someone else, and the singing came after. When I first discovered my voice, was I was in a, a schoolroom one day. I was singing. It was uh, break time, so the classroom was empty. Some girls walked in and said, "Where is the radio?" And I went, <laughs> "Wow, oh, that's me <laughs> singing." And these were girls who would not ordinarily look at me. Uh huh. So, <laughs> so that's when I said, "Wow, yeah, I have something here."
2: It's always inspiring for me, uh, Jimmy, to hear that universally throughout time, no matter what musical genre, young boys begin to make music because young girls notice them. <laughs> <laughs>
5: that is so true. Uh, <laughs> but that uh, that attraction, you know, that that uh, male female attraction, is a part of us. Huh? Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> and do you remember your first exposure to music?
5: Well, I would have to say it's in the church. Mm. I grew up in the Christian church, and um, I liked the church for that. That was the only thing the rest of it. I, <laughs> mm-hmm. The rest of it, I kind of got bored. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Good tunes, the rest of it, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
5: But I also,
4: I also heard as a kid you were playing festivals and doing American R&B and soul music.
5: Actually, we didn't have festivals of such in Jamaica. They were mainly concerts mm-hmm. in theaters, so I did that for like, Four years, yeah. And I was still in my teens. I toured Jamaica extensively, and then after that, I went to the UK, and that was where I started to do festivals.
6: You know, hear
0: you, donkey, you hear what the woman said, don't tie your donkey down there. You hear what the woman said, don't tie your donkey down there. Make him pray, make him pray.
4: You know, as far as the influences were, I know that, like, mento music was in in Jamaica at the time. Did that have much influence on you as a young man, and how much of uh, American soul and R&B was filtering into what
5: you were hearing? So, mento was one of the indigenous forms of Jamaican music. You know, mento and calypso was quite close, but there was a music form for mostly everything that we did, whether it was working or weddings or... Whatever the occasion, there was there was that particular indigenous music form for that. And I love that. But then I started hearing American R&B when my father bought a radio, <laughs> mm. which was a real big thing. <laughs> we would pick up um, radio stations late at night, especially in New Orleans. Wow. Yeah.
2: So, so the, the ingredients, Jimmy, millions of words by musicologists, by critics, by people who've never set foot on the island of Jamaica, yeah. have been written about where reggae came from. Yeah. From your perspective. Because you have been called, and this is one thing that is true, <laughs> you know, two people did more than any artist to popularize this incredible music, yourself and Bob Marley. Yes. Take us through, from Mento, Calypso, the music that's coming in from the church, the music that's coming in from American radio, how does this nascent music take shape?
5: So all of these music forms, including Latin music, which was mainly from Cuba. All of these music forms came together to form what is called reggae. I actually did one song a long time ago called Fundamental Reggae. It Say It's got some calypso, jazz latin rock roll.
0: It's got some calypso, jazz latin rock afro. classical notion you mm-hmm. know,
5: so I put all of those things. Jazz was also very important. Mm-hmm. Most of the musicians were jazz musicians. So that's how it came together, and it came together as a result of Wanting identity and respect, because at that early time, you would only get respect if you perform jazz or some kind of R&B music. And out of that frustration came reggae. Nobody can actually claim that there's this one person. It's a, it's a combination of all of us. And who are we talking about, Jimmy? So, for instance, there was a great jazz guitarist who's still around called Ernest Wranglin, who taught... Jah Jerry, to play guitar, and Jah Jerry was the main person who made that uh, k-chick, k-chick sound. That on uptick, the gu- yeah. yeah, on the guitar. Mm-hmm. Then there was uh, Teophilus Beckford on the on the piano, who gave that kind of a uh, honky tonk feel coming out of New Orleans, he, he he put that in. But everyone put it in their own way because they wanted to identify it as Jamaican music. They say, you see, listen to that. That's mm-hmm. me. That's mm-hmm. us. That's how it came.
4: Jimmy, we, we mentioned Leslie Kong, 1962. You're in Kingston. You're 14 years old. Jim is talking about this music sort of in the air, Jamaican independence from the UK at that moment. How much of it was you, how much of it was Leslie Kong in terms of how you sounded on those initial singles that you cut in the recording studio in in Kingston?
5: Well, Leslie Kong was uh, instrumental in the sense that he had a lot of ideas. You know, do the song like that or put that in it or, or things like that. But the first thing Leslie Kong liked about me was my voice. He allowed me to put that voice out.
2: And you remained intensely loyal to him.
5: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Because you know the chemistry was mm. so was so good. I didn't have need to go anywhere else. He was a very honest person, which means that we would get paid. <laughs> <laughs>
2: which was rare, right? <laughs> exactly. On Jamaica, yeah. Okay. Exactly.
5: All of that, yeah, why we, we, we um we stayed together until he passed away.
4: Which was uh, not until the early seventies. He had a nine year run yeah. with, with Leslie Kong where you went from basically an unknown to an international star already. Tell us where Chris Blackwell and Island Records comes into this, because I think Blackwell had a role in broadening your international reach outside of Jamaica.
5: Absolutely. That was uh, Chris Blackwell's role of broadening not just my career, but the Jamaican music altogether. Leslie Kong was the main producer who produced all of the international hits but Chris Blackwell was the one who took it to the next level. He had his base in the U.K., and then he was able to expand it and spread it out from all there.
2: Make it a true world music. Exactly. Jimmy, you've been asked this question many times. You know, it, it became Marley who became the face around the world associated with reggae. Many people had always said it was going to be you. And with The Harder They Come, the film we'll talk about in a bit, mm. that really was the introduction. But then Marley became the superstar. Were there ever hard feelings about that? I mean, because those people who really love reggae, they know oh. Burning Spear, they know you, yeah. they know Lee Scratch Perry even and what he did. Uh, was there jealousy?
5: Never was there jealousy between us. Not from my point of view, not from his point of view. You know, I've often heard him say, "Well, you know, Jimmy, I do him for do, me I do him for do." So it was always like that. I do, I did what I had to do, and he did what he had to do. That was what it was.
2: You know, in a way, you and Perry and others are considered still pure artists, and Marley has almost become outside the realm of music or art. You go to American colleges, and he's the frat boy poster on the wall and people are getting drunk on beer and they think they understand the culture and the music because they have the best of Bob Marley. Does that hurt at all to see what, what reggae is in some quarters versus what the musical heritage really is?
5: Well, for the fact that I was the one who really took Bob to make his first, record his first music, I feel very proud of that.
3: Mm.
5: But the rest of it is... People need to know people like you're talking about, Burning Spear, Desmond Decker, yeah. so, so many others, you know. So that's not the only one, but um, I don't know. I mean, for me, I'm proud of Bob. That's all I can say.
4: Yeah, You felt like a mentor to him in some ways?
5: I don't know if it's a mentor, but uh, the, the person who walked in behind me when I was playing a song on the piano and said, that sound good enough. So I played his songs and chose the songs and saw how sensitive he was, that discovered that he was a poet, the way he used words. I would say the one to uncover, to introduce him to someone who could further his career was Leslie Kong.
4: We're going to continue talking reggae with Jimmy Cliff in just a minute here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later in the show, we're going to review Richard Thompson's latest album, and Jim's going to drop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. Street,
0: Kingston, I sang my song for Leslie Kong. He said, "Let's go record it in the style of ska." So we did the tracking. make feel good reggae music gonna make me feel all right now reggae music gonna make me feel good reggae music making me feel all right now you know you really reggae music gonna make me feel all right now reggae music making me feel good reggae music making me feel all right now 1966 there was a new consciousness True. Of civil rights vietnam war and independence from british colonialists. The music was expressing all of this. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois.
2: For listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is the track The Harder They Come by our guest this week, singer and songwriter Jimmy Cliff. Cliff was an instrumental figure in the development of reggae, and that song, The Harder They Come, has a lot to do with that. In 1972, Jimmy starred in the film of the same name about a Jamaican musician turned gangster, Ivanhoe Martin. For a lot of Americans, this was their first introduction to reggae. Greg, I remember being a teenager, seeing it at the tail end of the punk movement in a theater in New York, and finding it both completely alien, what was this world, and also instantly familiar. Oh, that's a lot like New York, right outside. Of course, from the beginnings of the genre, reggae went much further back. We asked Jimmy Cliff about where reggae came from when we chatted.
5: Well, look, the the music, uh, popular music developed according to the spirit of the people. And artists translated what is the spirit of the people. Reggae developed, I mean, from ska, which was, like I said, we got independence from the UK. So the music had a very upbeat. And everyone was singing about celebration and all that kind of thing. Joyful. Joyful, Joyful music. Exactly. Yeah
0: are getting their independence and everyone is happy. So I will now tell the story and please listen carefully. Manly called up a referendum for you to make your own decision. So the people voted wisely now everyone is happy that there's no more
5: federation. Then a is... few years passed. The economy wasn't going all that well, mm. and uh, political turmoil and all that kind of thing. So it slowed down. People started to take a look at what is this independence all about? Mm. And uh, so the music slowed down with it as well. Mm. And then it became rock steady. Yeah. So let's rock it steady and see what's going on.
0: Take a time, take a time, take a time. No need to hurry. Take it easy. Take it easy, take it easy, no need to hurry. No stepping, no sliding, no bumping, no boring. I want to ride right into town. If you're far from the race, it's no disgrace, just pick yourself from off the ground.
5: Then people started questioning a, a little later and said, well, well, what is our roots really? What is our roots? We are 90% uh, African descendant people. Maybe the other 10 or 15% is a mixture of all people in the world. Who are we really? So we started looking to Africa. And then came in the spirituality, the cultural part of Rastafari. Yeah. And that's when it became reggae. Mm. words come to town. Cause God works come to us.
0: Can't get no food to eat, can't get no money to spend.
5: After reggae, we have all the different forms that came: rubber dub, reggae, dancehall, and you know, up to what we have
2: now. So and, and, it, and drugs yeah. to what extent? To what extent was <laughs> yeah, marijuana? Well, you know,
5: with with um, with Rastafari, marijuana, herbs, as we call it, was a sacrament. Like um, you know, wine is a sacrament to the Catholic Church, and that's so it was a sacrament. Then, you know, it became more like a social thing after that. Yeah. more than a sacrament. But um, that's how it developed.
2: You know, in, in just in some physical way, if you are the drummer and you imbibe in the sacrament, it's going to be hard to play upbeat reggae for an hour. It's a lot easier to get into the rock steady groove.
5: Yeah, that's a fact there. But people were kind of into marijuana before it came uh,
2: Sure, rock steady and that. <laughs> sure. No one factor, I think, is the key. Exactly. No one factor in anything here. Exactly. Precisely so.
4: Well, what I'm struck by, too, is what you just said, Jimmy, is the seriousness that was coming across the country when it realized, hey, it's not all going to be wine and roses here. We've got some struggle. There are people suffering. And you, in your late teens and early 20s, writing these incredibly serious, sophisticated songs, your American debut album, the one that people got to know you by, that uh, wonderful World Beautiful People record, an amazing record. It had songs like Vietnam on it, which uh, Dylan said was the greatest protest song he would heard to that
5: point. Tell us how you wrote that song. I had a friend whose parents migrated to the U.S. and then he came up and got drafted into the army and he went to Vietnam. He came back shortly after and didn't recognize me. Uh. His mind was blown. So that was one thing and the other thing was I was very much uh, into the anti-war movement in that time and a combination of all of those things just the song came out of that.
4: And I think in a song like Many Rivers to Cross, uh, from that same album, you epitomized, I think, what you were just talking about, the struggle. Absolutely. That was ahead for what you saw Jamaica going through.
5: Absolutely. So it was personal again, my own struggle, but at the same time, Jamaica and then uh, all the experiences that I was picking up in the UK at that time.
4: Mm-hmm. Did you keep a journal or were you writing song lyrics down in a book or did you just sort of have them in your head all the time?
5: In my head. It was just kept in my head. And like that song, I had that song in my head for a long time. When I was finishing that same Wonderful World, Beautiful People album, we did all the tracks in Jamaica, and I took it to New York to do the mixing and sweetening. Mm. It just flashed across my mind again on my way to the studio that, wow, I might have an opportunity to record this song. So like in 15 minutes walking to the studio, I finished the song. And then in the studio... Mm. I just played it right down and sang it, and that was it. First take. First take, one and only take. Wow.
2: See, no wonder wonder there was such a kindred eventually between reggae and punk. (laughs) It's all about the moment, first take, we're done. Yeah. (laughs) Jimmy, before we leave history, okay, harder they come. Yes. What's your recollection of the first time somebody says, we're going to work on this movie? The first time somebody
5: said that to me was at Dynamic Sounds Studios in Jamaica, and that was Perry Hensel. I had just finished recording You Can Get It If You Really Want, and I came out of the studio feeling really good. Up came this gentleman to me and said, "Ah, you know, I have a movie I want to make. Uh, do you think you could write the music for it? I said, "What do you mean? If I think I could, I could do anything." For like half a minute, he didn't say anything. He just looked at me. And then the next thing I knew, I got a script in England saying, "I want you to play the part."
2: Mm. Well, the little boy in from St. James who wanted to be an actor suddenly, ah, I'm going to exactly. be on the silver screen.
5: Exactly. When I read the script, I knew about Reagan as a little boy. When one heard the name Reagan, it struck terror mm-hmm. because for someone at that point in time in Jamaica to have a gun, it was a real big thing. And to have shot the police, you know, so when you hear the name Reagan, it was like terrible name. Mm. When I saw the script, I knew about Reagan. I said. Well, yeah, I could play this part. <laughs> <laughs> From the top of the hit parade
1: to the top of the most wanted list, he made them all. He crawled out of Shantytown,
4: fighting his way to the top. Well, it's a huge breakthrough for not only the Jamaican film industry, for Jamaican music, because the soundtrack was just loaded with songs that people to this day are still playing and a breakthrough for you. Yeah. Uh, did you feel the impact immediately? When, when, when was it apparent to you that, that something was happening here with this movie that was beyond anything you'd done before?
5: Well, while we were making the movie, we all went into the movie with a very pos- positive attitude, wanting to put Jamaica on the map. But for me, when I actually knew that it was something special was what happened in Jamaica when it opened in Jamaica it was like uh, I, I i couldn't get to the opening It was like a sea of people as mm. far as my eyes could see and uh, that had never happened in Jamaica ever
4: wow What still stuns me about the character and everything in relationship to the music that was being cut, I mean, there's obviously this outlaw nature, which people pick up on. That's very, you know, you can hear it in hip hop. You know, people are very attracted to this (laughs) figure that can go in and lay down the law. But there was also a sensitivity and a vulnerability there as well yes. you know when you hear a song like sitting in limbo or something like that yeah. you're you're moved by that song on a level yeah. that's more than just you know he's a gangsta superstar he's also got real feelings here yeah
0: sitting here in limbo waiting for the dice to roll sitting here in some time to search my soul.
4: And it seemed like that was important to you to put across this fully dimensional uh, character.
5: Yes, this character was an innocent character from the country. And he was a good person at heart who became bad because of the, the system, yeah. how it was. And I argued a lot with Perry Ensign when they were shooting it. Why should this character die? Why don't the record producer die? Because he was mm. equally as bad or, or worse with what he was doing.
2: Well, yeah, That's a key difference between a lot of gangster rap glorifies the pose of the gangster. No one could ever see the harder they come and say it's a nihilistic movie, that it's denying humanity or right. morality. Right. When you hear some extreme hip-hop today that glorifies uh, death and violence and drugs and and sexism, Do you think that has a place in music? Well, look, you know, music, human beings, we use it
5: constructively and destructively. The music that is used to send people to war, that is also on the destructive side. So as human beings, we have this paradox. Does it have a place? You know, the negative and the positive has a place with us as human beings.
2: That's the universe. Yes. You get both poles. (laughs) Exactly. I said the world is spinning around I said the world is upside down
3: I said the world is spinning around I said the world
2: is upside down Oh yeah Alright Okay, Jimmy, let's get to Rebirth. It had been seven or eight years since you recorded a new album. Right there in the title. You're stating your. Yeah, this is me coming back again, a new, reborn. What was the goal going into making this album? What was its genesis?
5: Really and truly, I I knew I had to make a game changer album. I don't know if I've succeeded yet on a commercial level. However, on a artistic level, I I think I've succeeded. You know, a few names were thrown out to me. I was uh, attracted to. Tim Armstrong, you know, knowing his connection with punk music, of Rancid, yeah, Rancid, yeah. right. He played me something that he had recorded, a track, and the sound that I heard on it, I said, "Wow, mm. you know, the sound is mm. the same sound that we had back then."
4: It's remarkable about rebirth because I really see the loop how reggae, those protest songs, those socially conscious songs, influenced punk. I mean. We learned about reggae in a lot of ways from Clash records, you know, and now you're doing Guns of Brixton on this record as sort of a tribute back to them yeah. because they were paying tribute to you when they, yes. when they did that song, you know, yes, back in, exactly, the, yeah. in the late 70s. ¶¶
5: You know, that uh, reggae influenced punk a lot. Social, political consciousness, and punk has it too, you know. Um, So my conversation with Joe Strummer before he passed away, we discussed a lot of those things,
2: yeah. A large portion of Rebirth is in tribute to your friend, Joe Strummer.
5: Yes, indeed. The last song that he did in the studio was a song on my last album before this one. I I felt when I did... uh, the remake of um, Guns of Brixton, it was like lifting my hat in him in some way, in mm-hmm. one way, yeah. When the law
0: breaks in, how you gonna go? Shut down on the pavement, or waiting on that row? You can crush us, you can bruise us, but you'll have to answer too. Oh, Guns of Brixton.
4: Now, I've heard some Jamaican musicians, Jimmy, uh, sort of look askance at some of the versions of reggae that they've heard by some of these cross-Atlantic partners, as you describe them, the, the punk bands in England and you know some of the West Coast bands. Do they know what they're doing? When you heard The Clash do reggae for the mm-hmm. first time, what did you think of it?
5: Again, music. I don't think the way they play country music in, in the UK is the same as they play it in Nashville. You know, the place where it originates, they do it different. But when it goes to another place, they put in their experiences to this sound or to this rhythm that they know. It naturally has to come across different. I I applaud them all.
4: Well, last time I saw you, you were actually performing in in Austin, South by Southwest Music Conference back in March, and Springsteen brings you out (laughs) and the crowd you know went nuts and part of it i think was springsteen's audience uh, knows your music so well from springsteen covering your music you know and he didn't pull out the most obvious song he pulled out trapped 20 years ago and turned it into another hit for you Um, were you surprised that he covered your music and and that song in particular
5: i don't know if surprise would be the right word but um it was very unexpected that song was like a B-side, mm-hmm. produced by Van Kit Stevens. And uh, when I heard his version, it was completely different from my version. So yes, yeah, so I was I was very surprised at that, you know.
2: As rock critics, Greg, it's worth remarking that is there any other artist in history? Maybe only Dylan, whom Garcia, Springsteen, The Clash, and Rancid would cover. Yeah, yeah,
4: exactly. Common ground. What's killing me about this guy, Jim, is he he talks about writing these cinematic images, these beautiful images in 15 minutes. It takes me weeks and months to come up with a paragraph as nice as some, you know, the cliffs of Dover Dover, and stuff like this. And now you're talking about Trapped as a B-side. What a remarkable song. You compressed all this beautiful and powerful imagery about your people, I would imagine, you know, Jamaica.
5: And it came out as a
4: B-side, like yeah. I so. forgotten. Yeah. So you yeah. didn't think much of it at the time, or it was just like, okay. I well. really
5: liked the song because you know it was one of those songs that I felt mm-hmm. um, I wrote and felt, but uh, well, I didn't think it was like strong enough to be a, a single, <laughs> mm-hmm. like a great song. Yeah,
4: wow. <laughs> well, it is a great song. Let me just tell you. <laughs> Thank you.
3: It's a great song.
2: Well, it's been an honor and a pleasure having, uh, having you on Sound Opinions, Jimmy Cliff.
5: It's a big pleasure. Thank you very much indeed.
2: Well, it
0: seems like I have played the game your way too
2: long. We're going to take a quick break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. When we come back, we'll review Richard Thompson's electric new album, and I'll play a Desert Island Jukebox pick. But first, we want to hear from you How did you discover reggae, and where do you hear reggae's influence today? Talk about that or anything on your musical mind at 888-859-1800.
6: Out the bills come in, round and round. we go again. I come close, but I never win. I'm stuck on the treadmill. Another day I'm punching steel to my mouth, too numb to feel like a hamster on a wheel. I'm stuck on a treadmill.
4: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim Dirigatus, and that is Richard Thompson with a song called Stuck on a Treadmill from his new record, Electric. Richard Thompson, guitar prodigy, founding member of the great British folk rock band Fairport Convention in the 60s, a band that also featured Sandy Denny on vocals. Any one of those uh, Richard Thompson Fairport Convention records are a must-own. I'm starting with Unhalf Bricking and Legion Leaf. Began the solo career in the 70s after leaving Fairport Convention and starts making some recordings with a singer named Linda Peters, later his wife, Linda Thompson what records those are. If you're not familiar with them, you need to check them out. The 1982 record, Shoot Out the Lights, is an absolute masterpiece. Also documents the unwinding of their marriage and their eventual divorce. Thompson starts uh, making solo recordings after that. He had a brief flirtation with fame in the, in the 90s. He had a great record called Rumor and Sigh, but he never quite broke through on the pop charts, never got that big pop hit. But I don't think there is a more respected a revered guitarist working today. His songs have been covered by artists ranging from people like Robert Plant and Bonnie Raitt to Bob Mould, R.E.M., Sean Colvin. Now he's got a new record out called Electric. Here's a track from it called Stony Ground on Sound Opinions. Oh,
6: my Morris got a battle last week Fell by the widow from across the street She kept him in the air and she told him what's what But he couldn't keep his mind off a of honey, for ourselves.
2: Tony Ground by Richard Thompson from the Electric album on Sound Opinions. Greg, no point in burying my lead. The album is a masterpiece, and you need to buy it. In fact, if you think or you know anybody who loves Mumford & Sons, you need to buy two copies and give them one, because this is what folk rock should sound like. It is no exaggeration to say that Richard Thompson is as great a guitarist from British rock history as Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, or Jimmy Page, although he's not nearly as well-known. I would also say that he's as strong a songwriter as Neil Young, and like Neil Young, he has varied his solo output between acoustic albums and tours and electric albums and tours. We were big fans of Dream Addict, his last original album in 2010, and he recorded that one live on stage to get a sort of in-your-face immediacy. This is another electric album, as you can tell from the title, although there's acoustic balladry on here too, but he he wanted that same immediacy in the recording. So he went to Nashville and turned to the old country bad boy, Buddy Miller, and he pared down to a trio. This was just him, a bassist, and a drummer. And as a result, when he cuts loose with some of the solos on this record, he has never been more ferocious and on fire and cathartic. There are also really quiet and wonderful moments It often sounds as if he is the medieval bard talking about the old English storybook characters walking hither and yon (laughs) through some tiny village. But I would venture to say, and this is where I'm trying to get you mad somewhere here, he is more immediate in writing about the current events than I think Bruce Springsteen has been in this century. He is talking about class issues. He is talking about being worked to the death toward what end. Sally B, they are repossessing her house, right? You know, it's set sort of in medieval times and it's the lord doing it to the surf but really what's the difference between the bank foreclosing today on the hard-working american and after 20 solo albums five fairport convention albums for this to be one of his best at age 63 is nothing short of extraordinary so yes buy it
4: yeah, Richard Thompson's on a roll. Uh, that 2010 record, I think, was kind of a turning point for him, Dreamatic, in the way that it had directly addressed, I think, the quibble that some fans may have had with Thompson's work in the last decade or so, where they think sometimes he sacrifices that guitar playing and that electrifying ability on, on that instrument to be a little more polite and refined as, as a songwriter. You know, it, it's, it's more about the songs than my guitar playing. Buddy Miller is a very unfussy producer, as you mentioned, and uh, he he does a lot of recording at his home studio in Nashville, and I think Thompson recording in that environment got the same kind of vibe as he did in that live performance on Dream Attic. Very unfussy, very rough, less studied. And it sounds wonderful. As a guitar player, he he has no peer right now, as far as I'm concerned. You know, he can sound like John Coltrane one minute, a bagpipe or a sitar the next. He evokes those backward guitar loops on, on the Beatles' revolver at times. It's an amazing sound that he has. The internal logic of his solos really resemble a jazz musician as much as they do a rock and roller. Songwriting? Again, Jim, you do say he addresses the contemporary themes. Uh, You know, I'm not going to compare him to Springsteen. I think Springsteen's pretty good at that, too. But Thompson's as good as it gets right now. And I love the last song, Saving the Good Stuff for You. Mm. I think in that song, he's really kind of saying, as we grow older, sometimes we start to figure it out.
6: I've seen trouble from every direction. My old head is peppered with gray. I could never resist life's temptations Oh, they just seem to fall in my way And the
4: idea of this artist well into his 60s now still still thriving and still putting out some of his best work is testament to that idea. I mean, you can count them, the artists on one hand, who are continuously putting out good work at this late stage in their career. Neil Young might be one, Bob Dylan another, and now Richard Thompson. So this is definitely a buy-it
6: record. Hey little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Just to cast away,
0: the island lost the sea, oh. Now I'm stranded on my own. Sandy far from home. Do
6: you remember? We were shipwrecked together.
0: Stranded out from so far from home. Sandy, yeah.
4: I see Jim DeRogatis climbing into his rowboat. Row, Jim, row. You're out to the desert island. You're going to play a track that you cannot live without. What's it going to be?
2: Well, Greg, you know, when we memorialize artists who recently passed, it's not that we don't always feel a twinge of sadness, but uh, no, I think artistic death has struck me harder in the last couple of years than the news that Reg Presley, the lead singer of the Trogs, died at the age of 71. The Trogs are one of my all-time favorite. The audacity of this British invasion group, this kid from Andover, which is like saying Gary Indiana of of England, right, was a bricklayer. He couldn't sing, and boy was he ugly, couldn't really play, but he had a burning desire to be a star. Reginald Ball rechristens himself Reg Presley, as in Elvis, right, and he becomes a star. You know, the Trogs are known as proto-punk heroes. Wild Thing. Everybody knows that song. Heck, Jimi Hendrix loved it and covered it. There was a much deeper catalog a limited palette. Yes, three chords and a fuzz box, a lot like the Ramones, but what they could do with it was wonderful. Nobody, I think in rock history, has expressed that awkward teenage lust better than Reg Presley. The song I'm going to play, I can't control myself, is almost, you know, a little scary, like you can't control yourself. That's kind of what serial killers say. But it and it starts with this horrifying, "Oh no!" right? One of the greatest shouts in rock history. But then it, it really becomes wonderfully catchy, sweet, and innocent. He's trying to woo this girl, and he, you know the bop, 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 bops of the chorus are just kind of sweet. I'm telling you, if you if you think the Trogs were just wild thing, you owe it to yourself to learn more about them. Here is "I Can't Control Myself" by the Trogs on Sound Opinions. Oh no. <laughs>
1: I take you, girl, as you're standing there Your low-cut slacks and your long black hair Don't want you going round with no one else
0: Cause when I'm with you, I can't control myself
1: The fence is down and you got me shaking
0: control myself I've got this feeling that's inside of me It makes me think of how things used to be It makes me feel alright And we love Myself.
2: That is the immortal. I can't control myself by the trods on Sound Opinions. My desert island jukebox pick, in homage to Reg Presley, dead at the age of 71. Greg, a great singer, and also later in his life, a well-known UFOologist in England and master uh, on the crop circle phenomenon. <laughs> What do we we have on the show next week?
4: Next week, Jim, we have some under-the-radar
2: records that you need to hear our buried treasures. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Adam Yaffe helped with our recording of Jimmy Cliff. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Annie Minhoff. Our intern is Griffin Waterman. And our fearless leader and executive producer, also a big Trogs fan, is Tori southside Malatia. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
6: New messages.
3: Hey, this is Scott from Wildwood, Illinois. Just calling with a comment on the show about great pleading songs. I wanna throw my vote in for answering machine by the replacement. I'm thinking that, you know, as with the best replacements material, the sincerity of this song is just so palpable. It sounds like Westerberg is recording himself at three AM just completely distraught and alone, imploring a technology meant to keep us connected that actually creates this seemingly insurmountable distance.
1: Heights, and my I Want You Back song would be Keep Your Distance by Richard and Linda Thompson. It's part I Want You Back, and part Stay Away. But well, My name is Eleanor Child, and I can't believe that anybody could think that Please, Please, Please by James Brown and the Famous Flames could be topped as a pleading song. Float, would yell in Minneapolis can't believe that you didn't include any examples from blues. There are so many great songs, and none greater than in Sailor and Asylum by Coco Taylor and Willie Dixon. Hi, this is Susan Edgerton in Reedsboro, Vermont. I like Warren Zivon's Reconsider Me. It's got the mix of irony and seriousness that only Warren Zevon can do. Hi, guys. This is Bart calling from Ypsilanti, Michigan. Love the Valentine's Day show. There's one I wanted to mention that has always seemed to fit that theme for me, and that's Coming Back to Me by Jefferson Airplane. And it's a haunting, melancholy dirge that just sets the tone of despair, and you, you get a sense from the bare arrangement of just a lone voice, flutes, guitar, and then those haunting images that the guy's giving. The shadow in the mist could have been anyone. I saw you coming back to me.
0: The shadow in the mist could have been anyone. I saw you. I saw you. Coming back to me. small things like reasons are put in a jar whatever happened to wishes wished on a star
1: you really don't know if this person is gone or will ever come back or if she's dead or you get the feeling that maybe she'll never come back but i think that the the fact that the man continues to see her is just what really makes it stick out for me. It's a very sad song, not one you'd want to play someone you love, but definitely one you'd listen to in the car by yourself. Hey, guys. One of the best songs you can use to get a lady back in your life. Uh, Red Crosses, Blow You Kiss in the Wind, off of Teen Babes from Monsanto. It's actually a cover, too. Yeah, it's a longing song, Blow You
4: Kiss. Hope you get it.
1: Not only is it a good song in theory, but I uh, put that song in a mixtape to my then ex-girlfriend, who is now my wife, having a second child. I'm just saying, it works. No more messages.
4: To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.